different, isn't it? Thank you for Katie and the guys for leading us into God's presence. And that's the wonderful thing that no matter where we are, God is with us. Amen, church? God is with us. And even though there, there's no congregation here in the building, in your homes, if you're watching it on your phone, if you're watching it in the week, God's presence, His Holy Spirit, on this day, this Sunday of Pentecost, is with you wherever you are. So it's good to be with you and to worship God. And it's good sometimes to do things a little bit differently because it reminds us to come out of what we're comfortable with and to experience God anew and afresh. But don't worry, we've not gone back into lockdown. It's all okay. We're not, we're hopefully we'll be back in the building very soon, maybe even next Sunday. But don't hold, that, hold me to that. So we'll see what happens. Many years ago, I was, I don't know, 16 or 17, I was in sort of sixth form college, and believe it or not, I used to play basketball. I'm not the, the sportiest or the tallest person uh, on the basketball court, but I used to really enjoy basketball. And there was one year where, as, uh, as a sixth form, a sort of sixth form college, we went to uh, a championship, and it was the South Wales under-19 championship for basketball. I think it was in Cardiff or something like that, and we went, and there were lots of different teams from all around South Wales competing in this tournament. And we were watching others play, and we were playing, and we won a few games, and we were doing okay, we were enjoying it. And all through the tournament, we were watching this team from Swansea play in the under-19. You need to hold that in your mind, the under-19 South Wales Basketball Championship competition. Under-19s, these guys were huge. If they were under 19, well, then I can run 100 metres faster than Usain Bolt. I'm telling you now, church, they were not under 19. They were so tall, they had beards bigger than the one that I, I wear now, and they were absolutely massive. They had muscles where at 16 and 17 years of age, you haven't even developed those muscles, and they absolutely trounced everybody. And our last game was to play this team from Swansea. And we, 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 there's a bit of trepidation as we stand up to play this team from Swansea. And I'd love to tell you that during this game, it's a real underdog story, that we had played three quarters of this basketball team. And in the fourth quarter, we were like 32 points behind. But all of a sudden, it turned around and we started playing amazingly. We were doing three-pointers. We were doing layups. We were doing jump shots. It was all going fantastically well. And with five seconds to go, it was 68 points each. And I got the ball outside the three-point yard. And I threw it. And as I let go... The clock went, the game was over, but the ball is left my hands before the time has run, so it's still in play. And everybody watches this basketball. It hits the backboard, it hits the hoop, it goes around, and then it drops in, and the crowd went crazy! And everybody's lifting me up, and it's fantastic. I'd love to tell you, church, it was an underdog story like that, but it wasn't. We got absolutely annihilated. I don't think we even got a point. It was so, so bad. Because the opposition was so much against us. They were far bigger than we could ever compete. And maybe you too have faced a similar situation where the opposition has been too much for you and, and they've trounced you and you've, you've been annihilated and you haven't been able to play. You've, you've just lost big time. Maybe you're, you're the team that you support, you know, Gary Tottenham Hotspur, isn't it? Maybe the team that you support, you always feel like you're the opposition. You're always getting trounced. 
You know, maybe if you're a Luton Town supporter, you're, you're on a high today because you, you didn't lose, you didn't get beaten, you, you beat the opposition and got promoted. But opposition is something we face in life on a regular, continual basis. You see, in all sorts of things, you cannot get through a day without facing some kind of opposition. In politics, the, 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 the main, the largest politically, political party that's not in power, what are they called? The opposition. Our, our world is geared up that, that there are those that are winners and those that are losers, those that will, will oppose us at every aspect. But when it comes to God, and the things that we do for God, and the things that God calls us to, there's a difference. Because friends, with God, the opposition is never too much for us. Because with God, we never get beaten. Because God will never get beaten. And we need to realize that we will face opposition, but this cannot stop God working and achieving his plans. And so the tension that as human beings that we live with on a day-in, day-out basis is to not give in to the opposition, to not give up, but to stay the course and realize that with God, that he will bring something amazing out of this. Because if we truly believe God has called us to something, then we must not allow the opposition to take us away from that. And so today we continue our series on Nehemiah, and you've guessed it, he faces some opposition. And we're we're starting in Nehemiah chapter 3, but what I'm not going to do, I'm not going to read the whole of chapter 3, I'm just going to read the first two verses of chapter 3, and then the first nine verses of chapter 4. I'd encourage you this week to... to to pick up your Bibles and to read the rest of Nehemiah chapter 3, and you'll understand why I didn't read all of that to us this morning. But it's really important that we read it so that by the end of this series, we've got a full picture of all that God has done through the book of Nehemiah. So I'm going to read Nehemiah chapter 3, verses 1 and 2, and then Nehemiah 4, verses 1 through to 9. Then Eliashib, the high priest... And the other priests started to rebuild the sheep gate. They dedicated it and set up its doors, building the wall as far as the Tower of the Hundred, which they dedicated. And the Tower of Hananel, people from the town of Jericho worked next to them, and beyond them was Zachar, son of Imri. On to chapter 4. Sambalat was very angry when he learned that they were rebuilding the wall. He flew into a rage and and mocked the Jews, saying in front of his friends and the Samarian army officers, what does this bunch of poor, feeble Jews think they're doing? Do they think they can build the wall in a single day by just offering a, a few sacrifices? Do they actually think they can make something of stones from a rubbish heap and charred ones at that? Tobiah, the Ammonite who was standing beside him, remarked, that stone wall would collapse if even a fox walked on top of it. Then I prayed, hear us, O God, for we are being mocked. May their scoffing fall back on their own heads, and may they themselves become captives in a foreign land. Do not ignore their guilt. Do not blot out their sins, for they have provoked you to anger here in front of the builders. At last, the wall was completed to half 
its height around the entire city. For the people had worked with enthusiasm. But when Sambalat and Tobiah and the Arabs, Ammonites and Ashdodites heard that the work was going ahead and that the gaps in the wall of Jerusalem were being repaired, they were furious. They all made plans to come and fight against Jerusalem and throw us into confusion. But we prayed to our God and guarded the city day and night to protect ourselves. And friends, this morning, I want us to think about two things. I want us to think about how Nehemiah starts the rebuilding project, because that is so key and so important. And then I want us to think about the opposition that they faced as they rebuilt, and how we can link that with the start of this building project. So the rebuilding project is going really, really well. You need to realize that we're talking about two and a half miles around the city. That's the, the length of the walls that needed to be built. You need to realize that this isn't a wall like we see that's got, you know, two or one or two house bricks height. This is really wide, maybe a meter or two wide. So you could, you know, you could get, um, you know, I don't know, 10 people sort of deep that could walk on top of this wall. This is a, a really thick, deep wall and a long wall and it's going really well and the reason it's going really well is because they're building in unity if you read on in chapter three you will see that in one sense they all start building at the same time and if you're building all together in a two and a half mile uh, radius you're not going to be able to see each other so if you're not building in unity there's going to come a point where you don't meet where you don't join a bit like the channel tunnel and you could just pass each other you know so they had to be together there would be people going back and forth making sure it was all working as it needs to be working and everything is going well they're building in unity they're having a you know i can imagine that there's a good camaraderie with all that they're doing and everything is going well and the reason as we know they had to rebuild is because the wall was in a mess and we know that that is symbolic of their lives and so the rebuilding of this wall is symbolizing the rebuilding of the people socially, economically, and spiritually. And chapter 3, verse 1, sets the tone for the chapter when we read, and it sets the tone for the building project, when we read, then Eliashib, the high priest, and the other priests started to rebuild at the sheep gate. Friends, why is this important? Who is Eliashib? The Bible tells us he's the high priest. Now, now Nehemiah, these are, the book of Nehemiah, Nehemiah's memoirs, he could have started this report by saying it was the stonemasons, it was, it was you know, the, the, the politicians, it was the traders, it was the merchants, it was all these skilled craftsmen, it was loads of people who came and started to rebuild that wall, but he doesn't start with them, he doesn't even start with a priest, he starts with Eliashib, the high priest. This is the guy who would have gone... Uh, into the most holy place once a year to atone for people's sins. This is a real big wig. This is somebody spiritually who's right up there. Somebody that the people would look to. And that is the person who, who, who Nehemiah says starts. He's the first one that Nehemiah mentions in the rebuilding project. And he rebuilds starting with Eliashib. And this shows us two things. If the high priest can get involved, everyone can get involved. You know, if the high priest gets involved, everyone can get involved. And secondly, it shows us if the high priest gets involved in the building project, none of us are too great to get involved. 
I don't know about you, but in our house, in our living room, there's kind of been an unwritten seating plan. Now, what I mean by that is, in, in your living room, as you set up your living room, there's always the premium seat. It's like the cinema VIP seat. Do you know what I mean? It's the seat that, you know, that might be the seat that the legs come out. That might be the most comfortable seat. It could be a part of your settee or it could be an armchair. But that has prime position for the TV, for the sound, for the visual. That is the prime seat where you sit in. And in every house, there's a, there's a hierarchy of seating plan of who sits where. Now, I have to tell you that in our house, as the man of the house, as the head of the household, spiritually, I've always had the prime seat. I don't give anybody a chance. I just, I just naturally sit in that prime seat. And then in our house, what used to happen was I'd be in the prime seat, then for some reason, Reuben would be in the second best seat, then Jem in the third best seat, and our daughter Kezia, ashamed to say, was in the worst seat of the house. It wasn't an awful seat, but it wasn't the prime seat. And Kezia, one day, a few months ago, turned around and said to my wife, Jem, she said, I never get to sit in the best seat watching television. It was like somebody had stuck a knife in my heart and twisted it. And so we needed to make sure that from that moment on, we circulated the seating plan. And, uh, you know, we, we, we sit in different seats. Ever since then, I have to say, our daughter's been ill and she's always had the prime seat. I don't, don't know if she's doing that on purpose. But anyway, but we all have a seating plan in our house. But I needed to realise that it's not beneath me to sit in a seat that's not the prime seat. A silly illustration, but can you see what I'm saying? And, and, and all of us are leaders, whether we're leaders in our families, whether we're leaders in the church, whether we're leaders in the community, leaders in our workplace, and there's not things that are beneath us. And we need to get involved. And when it comes to the church, you've got your leaders, you've got your ministers, you've got your your ministerial team. In this church, we've got elders, trustees, and deacons. We've got uh, ministry leaders. But there are those that are leaders in the church that they don't have a title. But whoever we are, as leaders, you've got to be willing to roll your sleeves up and get involved. You've got to be willing to, to sit in the seat that isn't the prime seat. You've got to be willing to lead the way. And so in a church, that's why when it comes to things like prayer, the leaders need to be leading the way. If the leaders are not showing how this is to be done, then is it any wonder where the rest of the church don't get involved as well? And so as the church, uh, and if you're a leader watching this, you know, I, I just want to encourage you and challenge you that when it comes to our prayer meetings, you need to be there. When it comes to giving God our first fruits of, of things like tithing, you need to be leading the way. When it comes to, to praying for others, you need to be leading the way. Because that's what Nehemiah is showing us with Eliashib, the high priest. He was leading the way to other people. It's why during lockdown we all struggled when the politicians started breaking the rules. We struggled because we were thought, well, if the politicians can't do it, if our leaders can't show us how to do it, why on earth should we bother? And then when that happens, there's carnage in the society. And it's the same in God's church and in the community. The church needs to lead the way in the community. So when it's looking after your widows and your orphans and those in need, the church needs to be the one that's leading the way and showing an example to the community. So not only is it significant with who Nehemiah starts with in his report of the rebuilding project, but where he starts in what he mentions is hugely important. He starts with the sheep gate. All of the gates were named something different and they were named according to 
their, their purpose. The dung gate. I'll allow you to imagine what that might have been used for, you know? There was a reason it was called that. And the sheep gate was in the, right in the northernmost tip of the city. This was the highest point in Jerusalem. And this was the gate where sacrifices were brought into the city. This was the gate through which the, the sheep would be brought, the lamb would be brought, they would be slaughtered because it was close to the temple. So this gate, friends, is, is symbolizing how people could come and repair their relationship with God. And that's why it's a very important and it's vital that Nehemiah starts with that because this is about repairing people's spiritual relationship with the living God. And we read about this gate, they hung the doors and dedicated it, or some translations say consecrated it. And to, to dedicate, to consecrate, means to set it apart for a unique purpose. And also that you're saying it belongs to God. And the dedication ceremony, the consecration ceremony, was they would sacrifice an animal and they would smear its blood all over the posts and the doors of this gate, or they would cover it with an oil. So every time, from that day on, every time somebody went through that gate, they would either see the blood or they would smell the oil and it would remind them of their relationship with God. It would remind them of what they're doing. They come to, to confess their sins, to make themselves right in their relationship with God. And we do things, don't we? We dedicate things to remind ourselves uh, of, of the, that we and the things that we do belong to God. We dedicate our children uh, in this church. It reminds us that they belong to God. We, if you're married you have a, and you have a wedding ring, it reminds you that you, you belong to each other and you belong to God. Tithing reminds us that the first fruits of all of our income belongs uh, to God. As a minister, I could wear a clerical collar or I could, I got reverent in front of my name. It reminds me that what I do, I do because it, I belong to God. And as people, we belong to God. We are sons and daughters of the living God. I just want to encourage you. What is it that you could do that daily reminds yourself that you belong to God? Maybe you could, you could, I don't know, print out something nice that says you're a child of God. Put it in a nice frame and put it by your front door. So every time you go out, every time you come in, you see it, it reminds you that you are a child of God. It's your way of dedicating your life and your day to the living God. And the sheep gate was also a symbol of the cross. You see, no other gate needed to be dedicated. For once this gate was dedicated, the whole wall was dedicated. And that's the power of the cross, the power of the gospel of Jesus. For once we're made clean, we're completely clean. The cross of Jesus covers everything. It covers every part of us. Now, not only were the other gates not dedicated, the other gates were built differently. The fish gate, the gate of Yeshana, the, the valley gate, the dung gate, the fountain gate. When it comes to all of those gates, we read, the builder set its doors... It's bolts and it's bars. But when we read about the sheep gate, there's no bolts or bars. You see, the sheep gate had no locks. Because when we come to God, it's free. There's nothing stopping us. There's no, there's no barrier. The gate of salvation, friends, has no locks. And it's the same with Jesus. There are no locks, no barriers to our salvation. The gate of salvation is always open for everybody. So it's a really important how the rebuild starts with Eliashib and the sheep gate. But then as they're building, uh, we read, they faced opposition. 
Now, the word Nehemiah uses for rebuild actually could be better translated as repair, as, as they're repairing the wall, because they were using recycled materials. They were using bricks that were charred and were broken, and they were using all of these things to put back to repair uh, the wall. And Sambalat scoffs that. He doesn't understand that. And he scoffs them by saying, are they going to rebuild with these broken and burned or charred uh, stones? But that's exactly how God works. He repairs us, and he doesn't always take away completely our brokenness. We see the scars. When Jesus rose from the dead, he had his scars. He was, he was, his brokenness was there, but his brokenness made him complete, if you like, and his scars were there. Some of you will be aware of the, the Japanese art of kintsugi. You know, when, when a bowl or a plate or a mug or a dish or something is broken, instead of chucking it out, they, they get some glue and they put some gold powder into the glue and they, they put that on, on the cracks and it, they build, rebuild it, repair it back together. And they, and, and they use that, but the scars, because you've put the, the, the gold in it, those cracks, those scars will be shown forever. And it's the brokenness of repairing that that gives us its uniqueness and its beauty. And that is what, how God works with us. He takes our brokenness and he uses our brokenness and he repairs us. Jesus, the stone that the builders rejected, becomes the cornerstone. They threw him out. They didn't want to know, but he becomes the cornerstone to our faith and to everything that we are. So the opposition comes, they're mocked, but what their oppressors cannot see is the beauty and strength in allowing God to repair to God to repair the walls and in doing so repair their lives as well in the fullest sense. And it's important to see how they respond in the face of that opposition. In, you know, they respond with prayer and with action. Now today is Pentecost Sunday. And it's a day when the Holy Spirit came in a mighty and powerful way. And uh, the wonderful thing is uh, since then we don't, we don't need a day, a year to remind us of the Holy Spirit every single day. You don't even need to come to church to remind you of the Holy Spirit. Every day we get to live in the power of the Holy Spirit. But that wonderful act on that day of Pentecost is seen in Acts chapter 2. We read these words. On the day of Pentecost, all the believers were meeting together in one place. Suddenly there was a sound from heaven, like the roaring of a mighty windstorm, and it filled the house where they were sitting. Then what looked like flames uh, or tongues of fire appeared and settled on each of them. And everyone present was filled with the Holy Spirit and began speaking in other languages as the Holy Spirit gave them this ability. At that time, there were devout Jews from every nation living in Jerusalem. When they heard the loud noise, everyone came running. And they were bewildered to hear their own languages being spoken by the believers. They were completely amazed. How can this be? They exclaimed. These people are all from Galilee, and yet here we are. We hear them speaking in our own native languages. Here we are, Parthians, uh, Medes, Elamites, people from Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus, the province of Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt, and, and the areas of Libya around Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts to Judaism. Christians and Arabs, and, and, and we, we all hear these people speaking in our own languages about the wonderful things God has done. They stood there amazed 
and perplexed. What can this mean? They asked each other. But others in the crowd ridiculed them, saying they're just drunk, that's all. Go back to Nehemiah, put yourself in his shoes. The day they started to rebuild, to repair the walls was an amazing day. After months of planning, of preparation, of all of the prayer, of speaking to who needed to be spoken to, not least the king to get permission, to get him to not only give time off, but to give him safe passage and to fund the rebuilding, the repairing project. But also then when Nehemiah gets to, to Judah to speak to all of the people that he needed to be to, to coordinate all that, all of that has taken place. And then the day that it started to rebuild, I'm sure it would have been a great day. You know, that day, if you like, when you're doing a building project and all the planning is taking place and then you break ground, it's a great day. I'm sure Nehemiah would have been pleased. And then in amongst it all, he gets the opposition that was seeking to derail him. And just like Nehemiah, the day of Pentecost is an amazing day. Hundreds of years after Nehemiah rebuilds, repairs the walls, on the day of Pentecost, all the believers were together. God does something amazing. See, there's unity again. He does something amazing when people come together and he sends his Holy Spirit in a powerful way. And it was wonderful and it was awesome and it was powerful. But what else was there? Opposition. We read in verse 13, but others in the crowd ridiculed them saying, they're just drunk, that's all. So all this wonderful stuff of God was happening and there were still those right in the midst of it. They couldn't see it and they were there to oppose to cause disruption. Something good of God is happening and there is opposition. But the opposition did not stop God working and achieving what he set out to achieve. And over 2,000 years later, we still have the Holy Spirit with us every single day empowering us no matter what it is that we're doing. We will read, friends, in the coming weeks that the, that the, the, the wall got completely rebuilt. On the day of Pentecost, people opposed it, but thousands of people were added to their number. Thousands of people experienced a real and living power for the experience of the living God. It transformed their lives. But whenever God works, there is opposition. Now here's the link. Between the start of the rebuilding project with the sheep gate and the opposition... What was it that Sambalat and his cronies were opposing? They weren't opposing Nehemiah per se, they were opposing God. They were opposing what God was doing. That they were not only rebuilding the walls, they were building the sheep gate, the gate that people would walk through to, to mend their relationship with God, to make sacrifices to God, to get themselves right with God. And it's that that Sambalat is opposing. And we need to realize that when, when the opposition comes, if we're walking with God, the people are not opposing us, they're opposing the living God, what God is, they're opposing what God is doing. Whenever we work for God and we face opposition, we need to realize it is against God and his plans. Why is that important? For when you know the opposition is against the living God, we can be comforted that it is God who will overcome the opposition. We don't have to fight in our own strength. If you believe that God will never ever be beaten, This means when any kind of opposition comes, you will never, ever be beaten. Doesn't mean it's not difficult. Doesn't mean it's not hard. But you will never be beaten because God is a God who cannot and will not, never, ever be beaten. I don't know about you, but I need to hear this today. 
Because sometimes the opposition feels like it's going to get the better of me. But if God cannot be beaten, then the opposition that I experience and is against me means that I will not be beaten. Are you with me, church? I just get a sense in your homes of you, you shouting out amen because some of you are feeling opposed at the moment. You're doing something for God, whatever that might be. You're working, you're living with God, and you're feeling this opposition, however that is seen. You need to hear this morning that God will not be beaten. And friends, the truth is, following Jesus, doing what Jesus calls you to do, it really is the best life imaginable. But if you're doing what God lays before you, you will have opposition. Why is that? Well, it's not rocket science. Jesus says to us, in this world, you will have trouble. Opposition. But I've overcome the world. And he's given us his Holy Spirit to accomplish his plans. The Bible tells us there are battles going on in the unseen, in the heavenly realms. That's to stop us falling in love with Jesus, to to disrupt the plans of God. So when we work for God, it's not a question of if we face opposition, but rather it's when we face opposition. And when that happens, the question is, do we give up? Do we whinge? Do we moan? Woe is me. Why is this happening to me? Or do we pray, step up and work even harder for God? As we look to draw our time together to a close, maybe, maybe you're facing opposition in your life right now. Not necessarily in the church, but maybe in, in the, the, the field of work that you feel called into. Maybe with your neighbours, maybe with your, in amongst your family, maybe, maybe with your health. You know, maybe you haven't thought of the struggles that you face as opposition. Now, I, I don't want to over-spiritualise everything because we live in a fallen world. But there are times when the struggles we face are moments of opposition to get us to give up on what God is doing and our relationship with him. You know, let me ask you, have you ever had a brilliant time with God only to go home and have an argument with your spouse? Have you ever been feeling really close to God and, and you walk into a really difficult situation then at work? Have you ever responded to the voice of God and, and then you get ill? Have you ever been in a meeting and got really excited about what God is doing only to see someone pour cold water on all of God's plans? Friends, if you're walking with God and if you're doing things for God, you will face opposition. And we deal with opposition by praying and staying focused, by being people of integrity. We read in chapter 4 that they prayed and built the wall, that they prayed and guarded the city day and night. They prayed and kept going. We read in Isaiah 26, you will keep in perfect peace all who trust in you, all whose thoughts are fixed on you. Friends, where do you feel you are facing opposition in life? This is not the time to give up. It's the time to push in, to push into God, to keep trusting in him. You know, I've been speaking to a number of people from church this last couple of weeks and who have said to me, do you know what, I, I really feel that the, the, the struggles with the building and the water leak at Perry Street, I feel it's, it's the enemy trying to oppose what God is doing in this place because God is doing amazing things in and through Billericay Baptist Church. People have said to me, you know, they look at the the fact that my daughter is unwell. They see it as opposition because God is doing some amazing things. And when you realize that, when you you make the connection, it enables you to realize that you walk in God's name and in his strength and his power. So even though life might not be easy, even though it might not be what you want, 
God will overcome that opposition because that's what God does. He's in the business of overcoming opposition. So as we face opposition as individuals, let's surround ourselves and cover each other with prayer and practical support. Where we face opposition collectively as God's church, let's stick together. Be ever more faithful and committed in prayer and roll our sleeves up and help where we can. But in all things, stay focused on God. So this means when we get together, there's no bad talk. There's no negative or downward spiral conversations because the one we serve and love is far bigger than that. So friends, let me close by reading from uh, the book by Eric Mason, Nehemiah for you. He says this, God is bigger than your opposition. God is bigger than your brokenness. God is bigger than your frustration. God is bigger than your past. God is bigger than your pain. God is bigger than your hurt. God is bigger than death. God is bigger than people who talked about you. God is bigger than the people who wrote you off. God is bigger than your loss. God is bigger than your sickness. God is bigger than you, so stay focused on him. Because friends, God is bigger than any opposition, anything you will ever face. The opposition could not stop God's work of the wall being rebuilt from being achieved. The opposition couldn't stop the Holy Spirit working powerfully in the lives on the day of Pentecost. And the opposition cannot stop God working in our lives. Amen. Church, let's pray together. Father, thank you that your opposition, the opposition that we face, is never ever bigger than you. And I just pray, Father, for all those that are watching this today or this week or in the coming weeks who are really up against it, who are really facing some opposition. My prayer is that they will have an outpouring of your spirit. They'll have a revelation that you will not be beaten. And this will give them the strength and the courage to stand tall and to go on. Yeah, and we ask all this through the precious name of Jesus. And we give you our heart. We give everything to you. And we search you. When we're struggling, we search you out. We don't give up on you. We search you out because we need you. Yeah, Lord, have our hearts today, we pray. Amen.